0: I'm going to talk about a little bit about suffering. Not, not start out with suffering, and that can kind of be a a gloomy topic. But so I want to just um, share three examples of why I, as a pastor, have been encouraged this week. And uh, you know, there were just three things that really blessed me as a pastor and as your pastor this week that I want to share with you. They're just kind of random and disconnected, but they all happened this week. So I want to share those with you as a word of encouragement. And um, the first thing is the way that this church family is rallying around Restoration Farm. It is just a huge blessing for me to hear the praise requests and to hear how all these very practical needs are being met by you. And I know uh, Jeff and Cookie have expressed their gratitude and, and their guests are very grateful but as a pastor, when I hear that you guys are rising to the occasion and, and, and giving of your time, your, your resources, whatever you have, to fill this this great moment of opportunity for the gospel to go forth in, in this little niche of an area, that just really encourages me, and I thank you for that. Also, um, had an opportunity to attend the Glory Reigns uh, volunteer kind of um, or participants uh, appreciation dinner, I guess you call it. And so these are they invited people for a dinner that have, have been instrumental in the ministry, uh, have given time or resources. And New Covenant Fellowship people was a very strong presence for that ministry. That blessed my heart. I'm looking around and there's pe- some people there I don't know, but the, uh, predominantly it was a lot of New Covenant people. You are investing yet in another ministry, another avenue, another way to praise the Lord. And as a pastor, that really encouraged me. So I thank you for that. And then the third thing of all things was Hunter Roberts had a birthday. Everybody's getting older these days. Now he's 18. Hunter's not here this morning. so. But anyway, um, it was private invitation only. Sorry if you didn't get invited, but you can't feed the whole community, right? But... Um, To be there to celebrate Hunter's birthday was a blessing to me because I look around. There's probably uh, he had friends and family there, but a strong representation of New Covenant Fellowship people. And it blessed my heart because here's a young man that has such a strong support system, people investing in his life, uh, friends that he grew up with. Uh, There were pictures of uh, infants together. Hunter, believe it or not was an infant at one time and was a little guy and he and um, somebody pointed out he and jaden as little infants laying together on the on the bed looking up i mean little peanuts of people but it was a great blessing to me just to see how this church family in its way as the lord leads connects and has invested in this this young man so i want to encourage you these are just practical everyday things I know that you're you're serving the Lord and giving your lives, but it's making a difference and it's a blessing. So thank you for your encouragement. Praise God for that. Um, Our text for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 18. And I'm going to spend a few sermons in this, I think three sermons in this chapter here, these verses here. And it Eventually, he starts talking about suffering and then he gets into the end times and eternity and and what happens with our bodies and so forth. So I'm going to spend some time in this passage and and look at it from a few different angles. Um, But as you know, this is a unique book. It's a letter. We, We call it a book, but it's a letter that the apostle wrote to a family of believers in Corinth, trying to hammer out the Christian life, trying to figure things out. What's it look like to worship God and praise God and the apostle has his own enemies. There are people who are working against him um, and his message. So he has to not only proclaim the gospel, which is hard enough, but also wrestle with uh, obstacles and enemies and lies and gossip and things like that. And one of the things that makes this letter unique is that Paul? It, it's almost an, an autobiography because he really, like no other letter, shares his heart and his experience with God in this. So we're reading it and we just get to be blessed and encouraged to emulate his exceptional life in Christ. So I'm going to just kind of jump right in this morning in uh, verse 7. To my first point, which Paul makes, and that is the power of truth or the treasure of truth in a clay pot. And what Paul does here is he compares, just simply put, the messenger with the message. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us love it just put th- this verse is really about putting things into proper perspective as matter of fact the rest of the passage is he puts suffering in perspective but for right now as we think about the treasure of the gospel and he spent a lot of time Explaining the glories of the gospel, how incredible it is in the ministry of the new covenant, what Christ has done for the world. And now he looks at that treasure and he compares it to the messenger. The bottom line is there's a reason that there is a huge difference between the glory of the message of truth and the messenger. And that is for the glory of God to show that it is the power of God and the power of belongs to God and man has his place but man is not to get into the way of the power of the gospel so that's what we see in that comparison the contrast the gospel's glorious the messenger uh he has kind of a different role to play he he's the servant of this treasure uh so we want to brag about the treasure and the truth Uh, not so much make a big deal out of the messenger. And the scripture calls the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls himself and all messengers or bearers of this truth, clay pots. And what he says is we have this treasure in what? This glorious thing in this clay pot. Why would he even bring that up? Well, as I said, the apostle had enemies. And the gospel has enemies today. We know that. But in that day, it is believed that there were those that tried to undermine his message, tried to undermine his authority, the questioning everything he did. And one of the things they did to try to undermine his message is not just um, attack his character, which we've looked at that but also attack his appearance. You know, the Apostle Paul, it is said, and I don't have a picture of Apostle Paul in my wallet or anything, but it is said that he was not much to look at. Um, That he was possibly small, uh, possibly hunched over, uh, didn't have good eyesight, and um, was just not a very uh, dynamic or appealing person in and of himself when it comes to his appearance, his general appearance. Now, he had a strong character, we know, that God forged in him, which was appealing and attractive. But when, when you just look at him, the impression you get is um, probably, who knows, n- nothing. Or, or maybe even think, are you serious? This guy has, he's what? He's a leader of what? Of who? He's, he's saying What? And so he had this this uh, this attitude or words possibly being spoken about him that he's not dynamic. He's why would you even listen to a person that looks like this? There's nothing special about this person. Therefore, there's nothing special about his um, his message. And basically what Paul is saying here uh, in my words is, okay. you want to go there. You want to you want to look at my physical appearance and. And my speaking abilities or whatever. Um, and you want to say, boy, they are really lacking. Touche. You're right. There's there's no fight for me in that. And I'll fight for some things, but I'm not going to fight about that. Uh, there's nothing to defend. Uh, I'm as common as they come. I'm as ordinary as they come when it when it comes to my appearance or perhaps my natural abilities or... The lack there of. I don't have a special charm. I don't have a special sway with a crowd. You know, can really work the crowd up with my da- with my dynamic uh, speaking skills. I don't get little secret love notes after I give a, a talk. These kind of things. My appearance, I grant you, is not impressive as a matter of fact unless god is working through me unless it's the power of god through miracles it's the power of god's truth changing lives i don't even think i could attract a crowd here and not only that i'm as amazed as amazed as you are that god would even choose me and as a vessel to hold and to proclaim the treasure of the gospel and if it if it wasn't for God's mercy and his sovereign choice, I wouldn't have a chance. I'm just honored to be even used by God. And Paul's already made it clear that his ministry is just God's mercy on his life. You know, God God didn't scan for the perfect vessel. He just uses vessels, weak vessels. And it turns out that that gives him glory so that the world can see a manifestation of the power of God it makes God's ways known so it's completely undeserved so it's possible very likely i would say that paul had to address this and these detractors and see it gets it gets difficult cuz we've been watching or listening to the apostle paul kind of tiptoe through different Attacks Because he doesn't want to make make too much of himself. Then he gets accused of being boastful and arrogant and so forth. But when you start... and, and, And he lets people poke at him. Okay, if you want to poke me in the eye, whatever. But when you start poking at the gospel, as if my appearance would detract from the glory of the gospel, then I have to stand up and defend myself. Or I have to, better said, defend the gospel. Because the two aren't the same. Now, there's a relationship here. And God uses clay pots, but the two are not the same. So, if you're going to take my um, homely appearance and say, therefore, the gospel's not attractive, that's not true at all. The gospel actually should be more attractive when you see common people that God uses to bring back, to bring forth such change and and reformation and salvation. Now, there may be in this world some pretty impressive clay pots you know where you've got some really dynamic ministers evangelists disciple makers teachers whatever i mean they 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 they're great at bringing forth a message very articulate very charming very winsome and on some occasions you they're very very attractive and appealing and then you have the rest of us. So you have a few, you know, there's some out there. And then you have the rest of us. But, you know, if you ever wondered about the Apostle Paul and how much he cared, or say how much time he spent in, in his appearance, wanting to man please. Uh, wanting to come across as being very physically appealing and having his act all together. and I think now we kind of know that's like way secondary on his list. His drive and time is spent in making sure that the treasure is clearly communicated, not that the messenger has it all together or looks wonderful and shiny. So he sees himself as a replaceable instrument, if you will. So a clay pot <clears throat> A clay pot, um, clay jar, obviously in that day and age, they made lots of things out of clay. It's a very practical material to make very practical and common um, utensils. It's a clay pot. You could say a clay jar. They use them for just about everything. I mean, you stored your, your stuff in those. You could store grains. You could put water. You could change water from wine in clay pots as Jesus did. Uh, the the parable of Jesus where the man had the treasure and he buried it. You put your treasure in clay pots and it protects your treasure and you put it in the ground. So it it could just be anything from leftovers to food to very, very high value materials put in them. Um, Sometimes people put valuable documents in them to preserve them. So it was a very practical item or utensil that was used in that day. It served a tremendous purpose. I'm sure that you have uh, by now have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which came from the caves of Qumran, and the story behind that in the uh, 1940s, where a 12-year-old shepherd boy, he's just doing his duty, boring, he's leading the sheep around so they can graze, and... Um, And I think it's uh, in the western part of the Judean desert, the West Bank. And so in that area, it's kind of mountainous, kind of stony. You know, there's not a lot of vegetation. I've seen it. Anyway, he's he's leading his sheep or goats um, around there. And it's not uncommon to see see little holes, little dark holes in the side of the hills or the mountains. And there's caves in there. And so he sees one. And what does a curious 12-year-old do? He looks in there and he picks up a rock and he just throws it into the darkness and he hears something break. And that little breaking turned out to be ancient clay pots that that held and protected um, ancient manuscripts from first century. And they believe it was from the Essenes. And I want to say it was like uh, 900 or more artifacts found of biblical writings that were very, very similar, and in many cases, exactly like what is found in the scriptures. So, in other words, they copied scriptures, they preserved them, and they believe it was from the, the group called the Essenes. We've talked about them in the uh, very conservative group of Old Testament worshipers there. So, anyway, they preserved God's writings in clay pots, and it turned out to probably be the greatest archaeological discover, discovery. Um, in our century or in that century. So these pots were used for a lot of different things, sometimes for noble purposes, sometimes for ignoble in, in purposes. You know, you heard of pea pots and stuff like that. Well, that took place in that day. So the whole point is that it's not the item in and of itself, it's not the pot, it's what's in it that is either valuable or not. And in Paul's case, he is communicating that the the, the pot is only as valuable as what's in it. So if you go to an auction, um, my clay pots are five-gallon buckets. I use five-gallon buckets for everything. They're in my shop. I I, I have my different tools or my different trades. My electric one's in this bucket. My plumbing's in this bucket and so forth. And that's how I keep track of things. If you go to an auction and you're bidding on a bucket full of of Civil War coins or, or memorabilia, it's gonna go for you're gonna pay a lot of money for that bucket. But if you just want to buy the bucket, it's really not worth anything. People just pass them around, you know. And so that's the whole idea. The worth of the clay pot really depends on the treasure that is Within it. Second Timothy 2.20. Paul talks about this same thing. Where he's talking about. God's people as human vessels. And he says some are used for honor. And some for dishonor. Some for lofty things to hold say gold. And others. Well that's that's your. um, Your restroom or your scraps. Or your slop to feed the pigs. It's just a very useful thing. So this is a biblical perspective on the messenger versus the message now god seems probably more content with this <clears throat> than we are because our tendency if we 're honest with ourselves is to put the emphasis on the messenger and we we have a tendency to look at a, a messenger try to find the perfect messenger so what how that transcribes is a lot of times as Christians, we think to ourselves, and I am, have been guilty of this. You, you see this celebrity that is incredibly popular, has a following of fans, and you think to yourself. If that person, athlete, actor, leader, whatever, singer, entertainer, if that person would just get saved look how many people they would bring into the kingdom because all these people love that celebrity and they'd be so influential. Have you ever... Am I the only one that has ever thought that? I used to, especially as a new believer, I think, man, it would be so... Man, our churches would be filled if such and such would just get saved. And that's that's a human way to thinking. And in theory, you think it should work. But in real life... There have been very, very few examples of celebrities getting saved and actually being a good influence on all of their fans in real life. And a lot of times we have celebrities getting saved, and then next thing you know, they're not saved anymore, or they're a bad influence, or the message that they received wasn't turned out to not even be the gospel message. So a lot of times, it just gets really, really messy. Now, there are some exceptions. And I'll use this exception because it fits right into the scripture. Well, there's a very, very popular Christian band that has even um, had hits in what we consider the secular world. Called, we sing some of their songs here. And it and it fits right into our verse 7. What's the name of the band? Yes! Good. You guys got it. So the jars, so jars of clay, they've been around for years. They became celebrities, very popular, but they held their ground. And they remained a good influence. They didn't let the for, fame and fortune affect the treasure of the gospel. And I happen to love their songs very, very much. There is a 1800s commentator, commentator by the name of Denny who says... No one who saw this, talking about Paul. No one who saw this and looked at a preacher like Paul could dream that the exclamation or the explanation lay in him. Not in an ugly little Jew without presence, without eloquence, without the means to bribe or to compel. Could the source of such courage, the cause of such transformations be found it must be sought not in him, but in God. So I like the way the Bible edits our perspective, tries to correct the way we look at the world, the way we look at people, the way we look at ministers, and the way we look at the treasure of the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 29. Paul also wrote this to them, same people. For consider your calling, brothers. So God does not want us treasuring the wrong thing. He wants us to keep the exaltation, the object of our exaltation as Christ and the beautiful truth that saves us and sets us free from our sins and to not get caught up in the messenger, whether they are attractive or appealing or not. Well put, I think here. Clay pot is exactly what God intends in his, in his description. So we apply that just with this understanding of a biblical perspective on wh- what, what do we want to use to attract people to the gospel. We want to keep things in balance. And we want to keep the main focus, Christ, as we sang today, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. I love that song. And as we were singing that, my mind was brought to Job. Because you think, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And, I, and it sounds so trite because Christians say, but that's enough. And it sounds so trite, but it's true. If all I have is, so you take a, a real life situation of the man, Job, who lost everything that the world has to offer. Just lost it all. And he concludes, my Redeemer lives. It's the same thing. All I have is Christ. I lost all this, but I didn't lose hope because I didn't lose God. God exists. So you can strip everything away. In essence, is what he's saying. Strip it away. Yeah, it hurts. It's painful. But I have God and that's all I need. All I have is Christ. So if you strip these things away and that kind of is a a segue into our next. Teaching here from the Apostle Paul. And it's what I'm going to call a, a plan for suffering. <clears throat> and you'll see why as we proceed. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage in its entirety. So I'll read seven again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So when it comes to clay pots, the power belongs to God. And we all know, I'm sure by now, that living the Christian life can be messy. I mean, there's death taking place. The Apostle Paul says, I, I'm dying. I'm dying on the outside. My body, physically, I'm wasting away. And a lot of that's not just it's not just age, it's not just the fall and the curse, but it's because he's giving his body to the cause of Christ. And it's hard on it. You know what Paul's been through. It's hard on it. So the Christian life is messy, and with the Christian pilgrimage is mixed in our path to one degree or another, suffering. This idea of not just having to die on the inside, the inner man, to say no to self and yes to Christ. That's hard. That's a form of suffering. Man, you've got to die to self. I don't want to die to self. Hold on. But also you have just the, the practical outside things, the things of this world that bear down on us. And so we're not excused from suffering. As Christians, a matter of fact, that Jesus told his disciples, expect it. Because there's there's a clash happening here. There's a clash between light and darkness. And it doesn't always go well for the clay pot, for the messenger. So you need to expect some form of it. And God employs us for this. And part of the purpose of it is to display the power of God in Scripture. Human weakness, when that human is is sold out for God, results in a manifestation of God's power. But it is at our expense as servants of God. And therefore, we often face suffering. Paul's not sugarcoating this at all. He has been afflicted in many ways. We just read it. And that's why one of the reasons there's a lot in this passage and I'm going to spend some time here. We're going to kind of look at this and digest it from different ways because Paul gives us different perspectives. But I want to walk through the reality of suffering. And I think that the the big question here as believers, we read this and eventually not today, but I'll get to it is, you know, okay, he experienced all that suffering. Why is it worth it? Like, how can he say That he was brought down so low. How can anybody say "I, I, I was crushed? Yes, I really was crushed, run over, but not destroyed. And how can he say I don't lose heart when the world throws everything it can at him, so to speak, to stop him, to detain him, Uh, to to cause him to lose heart, to cause him to slow down. And how can all of this happen in real life? And he says, I I don't lose heart. I think that's the question we need to answer. There's something in here. And if we're all going to suffer in some form as we serve the Lord, we want to know what that is and we won't know yet because I'm not there yet. We have to talk about Suffering, because suffering in God's plan, as much as we hate it, and I am with you, I do not pray, I am not so godly, that I get up in the morning, Oh God, I want to suffer for you today, to draw me close. I wish I was, and you know, the the, the apostles rejoiced that they got beaten for sharing the gospel. I'm not there yet. Maybe if it happened, I would be there God's power. But anyway, it's it's just real and the Christian life is gritty and Christ suffered. God comes to this broken earth and in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, the world throws everything at Him. The devil throws everything at Him as well. It's terrible. It's grueling. Sweating drops of blood. And yet there's something bigger, something better, something more glorious. It's this biblical perspective and if we don't keep The biblical perspective, and we focus in on the material for too long. If we stay in that place too long, we may lose heart. We may lose perspective. And it may hurt more than it's supposed to hurt. So, Paul's, and gosh, I read this and I think, Paul, he's falling apart. His clay pot's falling apart. He's got trials from every angle dying on the inside, he's dying on the outside, but he's not decimated. So in order to to know how that's possible, we've got to think deeply about suffering. And you better believe that, as Paul was going through, that, you know, when you're suffering, you can't help but to think deeply about suffering. You're drawn into it. So I want us to think at least a little bit about suffering. And just to get our wheels turning, I want to, uh, you don't have to, to turn there, because most of you are probably familiar, but it's in Genesis chapter 16. It's the story of Abram and Sarai. Um, if you're familiar with it, God calls Abram to follow him. Sarai is his wife. And he gives him this blessing, this promise that I'm going to make you the father of many nations. So they are childless and they're elderly. They have not been able to have children. And God says, you're going to have children. But it didn't happen. After years, they gave it their best, I guess you might say. And uh, children were not happening. So Sarai says to Abram, why don't you take uh, my servant? She's an Egyptian servant, Hagar. And then maybe we can have a child. And it was a little bit of a custom thing that I won't get into. So in our culture, we think, "Uh, what? But in that culture, it wasn't quite as um, shunned, however, as you can imagine, it didn't turn out so good because now what happens is that yeah, it worked. He said okay, to his wife, and it worked, and Hagar was with child. But now the tables turn because now Sarai is looking at Hagar who has her husband's baby, and and Hagar's kind of like, mm-hmm. see how this is, and Sarai all of a sudden feels terrible. She feels like she's not in. Uh, that she's disconnected and that she's a lesser of a person, lesser of a wife because she can't get pregnant. So she goes to Abraham, Abram and whines and says, this is terrible. My life is miserable. I can't stand this person carrying your child in here. And he says, do whatever you think is right, whatever you want to do. So what uh, Sarai does is she treats Hagar terribly, punishes her, treats her harshly makes her life miserable. Hagar sees her writing on the wall, and she says, Man, if she treats me like this, what's going to happen to my baby? And so what does she do? She flees. And then you have the famous passage where God finds, here's a single, now she's a single pregnant woman in the desert fleeing, and God finds her. God sees her and God knows her and comes to her. And, and that's that's a powerful preaching point here. In verse 9, uh, 16, I'm 7 through 10. Uh, but verse 9, here's what he says. Oh, wait a minute, let me go back to 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, a lot of times we look at that passage and we see how God came to her. And then we see this blessing, which, by the way, God fulfilled. But there's also this little verse in here that was pointed out to me by a professor from uh, Hillsdale College. And when I had COVID and I couldn't go to church, um, I was given this free course in the hopes that I would give them a donation. And um, I used it as our church for the family because we were quarantined. And it was a lesson on the literary structure of this. So here's a verse that we often overlook. And the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her harsh treatment. That's the Tanakh, the the Hebrew version of the scripture. That's what it says. So he comes to her, he ministers to her, he gives her a promise. But he says, go back to your mistress and submit to her harsh treatment in simple terms. Yes, I see your suffering, Hagar. Now go back to your suffering. Now, what do you do with that in our day and age where all we think that we're just supposed to be comfortable all the time? And everything's supposed to go good in our way because that's the God of blessing. He gives the blessing, but then he literally says, go back. Now, what, what would happen if I, as a pastor, gave that kind of advice to somebody in the church? Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine now go back. So what is our perspective on suffering? What place does it have? Yeah, it's not just uh, uh, like a splinter to be avoided. It's not just an uh, unfortunate part of life. But it is often a necessary part of life in God's heavenly plan, his otherworldly plan. And, and it's because of the way God uses it. God uses suffering to make himself known. God uses suffering to fulfill promises. God uses suffering so that the world can see how powerful he is and what he can do and how he can change and how people who have no business succeeding as they do or obeying as they do are able to do this. And so this heavenly perspective, I think... Uh, this passage drops it in our laps and hopefully drops it in our minds for us to wrestle with. but suffering sinks deep. It, it has a different voice and it seeks us into the glory of God that he wants us to experience. It takes us has the potential to take us deeper. so we don't want to misunderstand it. So what I want to do is spend a little bit of time about talking about a suffering plan kind of a, cr- a crash course because suffering's unavoidable we we need to understand it properly we can't afford not to understand it properly and when we're in the midst of it a lot of times we aren't thinking clearly somehow paul managed to keep his perspective in the midst of suffering as grueling as it was and i think the bible obviously has like this distinct suffering plan and by plan i mean it's it's something to follow to get you through that's all nothing profound it's just This is what I'm going to follow. This is what I'm going to believe. This is what I'm going to focus on to get me through. And God has a plan for suffering. What is your suffering plan? What is my suffering plan? Uh, We have one whether we realize it or not. It's it's a coping mechanism. It's, it's It's our plan. It's what we're going to do when suffering finds us. And everybody needs a plan. So let me just give a very quick... Today, crash course in two unbiblical suffering plans that we are immersed in in our culture. And then the next sermon um, will be the uh, an explanation of the biblical suffering plan. So what I'm just going to kind of give us... I'll end with a taste of that. But I want us to be aware, if we're going to think deeply about it, so what are the plans out there? Like, you know, we are immersed with modern-day media. So we're constantly seeing... Different alternatives, different ways to approach, morality, faith, belief to live your life. There's this competition here. You have God's way and then you have the way of the flesh. So there's two popular approaches, I think, um, and there's many more than this, but there's two things that I think that we're often confronted with when it comes to, well, what do we do with suffering? Like, what do you hear people saying? Or how do you console people? What do you point them to? In their suffering, uh, where whether you're a Christian or not, many people are not for a lack of words and advice when it comes to suffering. Suffering, why do we need a plan? Well, suffering's indiscriminate, right? Like you, it doesn't matter where you are in this world. You're you're gonna to some degree or other. You're gonna suffer. Uh, you you could be born in in one of the wealthiest houses or homes or families in the world or the most impoverished, suffering will find you no matter where you are. Uh, you can be highly educated or ignorant, suffering will find you. You could have access to the greatest medical advances the world has to offer or not. Suffering will not excuse you. So it's it's indiscriminate. People of all races, all ages, it's it's universal and it is indiscriminate. And that's the world that we live in. So there's this one plan. I'm going to call it the secular plan. And that's the, the plan. You know what um, secularism is? That's the absence of God. And we're going to do life. We're going to see life. We're going to live life with the absence of any idea or belief in a higher power. We see this all the time in movies. I don't know. In movies, TV, cartoons, advertisements. This plan... ...is communicated to us. And the idea is... ...I'm sorry about your suffering... ...but get used to it. Because this is all there is. And it's a belief that says... ...the world is all there is. Material is all there is. Molecules are... There's no higher power. There's no higher meaning. There's no reason for anything. What you see is what you get. And because that's true... When you suffer, what you see is what you get. So I'm sorry, but it's just the way life is. There's no answer to it. Don't look for any higher purpose or meaning in it. You just do whatever you got to do to get through it. There's Nothing out there to, uh, above you or beyond you that can offer you any help. You are on your own. It's uh, what you see is what you get here. And I know that you might be tempted to be mad or angry or outraged that you're suffering or your loved ones are suffering, but there's no need because to be angry at something is to insinuate that there's a right and wrong. And there really is no right and wrong. It's just what we make of this world. We make it's what we make of it. So that's the message that is, you know, put out there. And if there's no God, if it's true there's no God, then that's certainly a possibility. What else are you going to do? If there's no help, if there's no meaning, if there's no hype, there's nobody out there other than what uh, the material means you have. That's a possibility. But, of course, it's a big problem with this plan because it's so cold, right? It's cold, it's heartless, it's ruthless. And even though some people say, I don't believe in any higher power and this is all there is, then we're left with just this world, we're left with... Um, survival of the fittest you know the we're left with the the army ants carrying the little beetle to the queen so it can be eaten It's kind of man eat man animal eat man animal it's a lot of suffering it's brutal it's bloody and that's all we have so we believe that in one sense or they believe that in one sense but when it comes to human suffering we don't want to believe it we want it to stop i don't want to tell you look you're probably going to get eaten you're probably going to get shot. You're probably going to get killed. Some kind of accidents. It's just the, the the world we live in. It seems so cold, and we don't want a cold world. We want a world of warmth. We want a world of light. And so, even people with this plan often will give you advice that is more like biblical advice. Oh, you can get through this. Oh, well, I'm ho- I'm hoping for the best here. Everything's going to turn out just fine. That's totally contradictory to. The plan of secularism because there's no reason for it to turn out fine because there's no such thing as fine. It's just it is what it is. So we're so we get this contradiction here and I just am going to think deeply about it. Do it right and land in the, in the right place. I just want to present that to you that we're faced with this and this plan solves nothing. It means that there is no answer to suffering. There's no remedy at the end of your life to suffering. You go into nothingness. The world will always be stuck in this. That's the plan. That's the belief there. And basically, what it does is that it, it's, it's a frowning face, and they just kind of change it to a smiley face for no reason. And that's how some people uh, progress. Suffering is still there. It's meaningless. It's gloomy. It's sick. And then there's another one here. As you, these are crash courses now. Um, and I chose to, to look at the suffering plan of New Age or Buddhism because we, I see this in kids' cartoons all the time. It's this worldview, it's this, this idea of suffering, the Buddhist plan, the New Age plan. It's kind of a mixture uh, we would call secularism, the Western plan, this, the Eastern plan. And it says, yes, it's a little better because it says, yes, yeah, suffering is real. Suffering is with us. And we can do something about it. So it does offer some hope there. And you can even be outraged about it. This follows the four noble truths. First of all, uh, this suffering plan, all of life is suffering. That's what you need to know. In order to understand suffering, you need to know all of life is suffering. There's no avoiding it. It is the very essence of life. Second... The cause of this suffering is desire. The reason you have uneasiness, you're unsettled, is because you want a certain thing and you're not getting it. You want health or you want pleasure or whatever. You're not getting it. There's this gap between what you want and what you have, and that's causing suffering. Third, the way that you eradicate the suffering is you eradicate the desire. Because if you don't desire anything then you can't get hurt by anything because you, in your mind, never wanted anything to begin with. Right? So now there's no gap there. And then, ideally, you'll reach the state of nirvana, which means you have somehow gotten to this mental, psychological, spiritual state of no longer desiring or wanting anything. Therefore, you're never disappointed. And that's, you're set free with uh, nirvana. You never miss out because you never crave or you never want. I think that's really throwing the baby out with the bathwater because you're throwing... Desire is not a bad thing. Desire is a good thing. We just need our desires realigned and restored or resurrected, if you will, to focus on Christ. By the way, the opposite um, view of this is materialism. And that material, materialism, in essence, says rather than ridding yourself of all the things you want Just dump them on top of each other. One pleasure. Go and get as satisfied as you possibly can. And you overcome your suffering by indulging yourself with as many good things as you can. And that's the answer. That's materialism as a side note. So this is a view. And then you you have nirvana. And then you have the the eightfold path to reach nirvana. And I'm not going to get into that. But what you find in the end of this plan is that... Uh, The the teaching or what we're encouraged to believe is that as you empty your mind from desires, what you find is that the world of suffering isn't real. It's more of an illusion. As a matter of fact, you empty yourself and you keep emptying yourself to the point where you realize there is no self. But what there is, is is there's this essence out here. There's this being out here and it's all one. If you want to get into Star Star Wars version, it's the Force that's out there, and you are a part of it. But you lose your individuality. You don't have desires of the self because you find out through meditation you are not a self. You're just like one. You're you're, you're this big thing, a force or being out there. So by losing all of that, you become nothing. But you're, then you're a part of this. That's so you, you you lose your individuality. You deny reality. You deny the self to the point of no longer even being a self. So that's a long way to get there, and that's a plan that we see. And in part, we drink of that Kool Aid, if you will. Our society, our culture, sometimes denies reality, or thinks that that we can we can be healed by the powers that are out there and giving ourselves to it, and trading these kind of things the suffering in the Christian view as we close what does the Christian view say about it what are we learning from Paul suffering's terrible but it's real but there's an end to it it's not always going to be here and for the Christian on a practical everyday basis not even just out here in, in, in the world to come suffering and glory go, together suffering and glory go together for the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that is a heavenly perspective of miserable things it has a purpose A very important purpose. And it's not even just to level the playing ground. It is to elevate us to something that is beyond comparison. The Apostle Paul is calling this list of misery that he just shared with us. The things that he has experienced as light and momentary. With a biblical things that we would call crushing and despairing. And I can't go on. He says it's light and momentary compared to what is to come and it's actually bringing me where i need to be so that i can sink deeper into the glory of god so our hopes and our dreams and our desires we don't abandon these we we allow god in his spirit to restore them to their proper place so that we are satisfied so that we do experience joy so that we do know what wholeness is and have a measuring rod, if you will, of what is spiritual health and what is spiritual sickness. So suffering is that terrible, unnatural thing, if you will, that shakes us. Yes, it shakes us. But as it shakes us, it takes us to this place of glory that God would have us dwell. See, in the Christian plan Joy comes in the morning, right? Yes, but joy's in the morning. In the Christian plan, people are set free. In the Christian plan, there is an end to evil and suffering. In the Christian plan, it ends with this overflowing of glory and stays that way for how long? Forever and ever and ever. And that is... Christian plan. So we we just want to close by thinking about the glorious gospel in ourselves as God's servants in clay pots. And let us see suffering in the light of Scripture, and that is as preparation for the eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all comparison. May God bless the preaching of his word.